Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us right here for the Active Church Podcast. We believe that you can tell a better story and we are so glad you are engaging with our content today. You're about to hear from one of our incredible teaching pastors and we hope that you'll be impacted by this message. Thanks again for being with us. At Active Church, we believe that you can tell a better story that no matter who you are, what you've done, or where you've come from, that a better story is possible for you. And we believe that a better story includes four really powerful decisions. The first is choosing to pursue God with your life. The second is choosing to progress together with others in life. The third is choosing to provide hope, connecting your heart to your hand. And the fourth is choosing to prepare leaders. And that probably is the most significant decision that you and I can make outside of pursuing God. Because when we choose to become a leader and prepare leaders, we are choosing to be effective in life and we're choosing to disciple or help others to follow their purpose in life. And I believe that you're a leader because you have influence. Now, you you may not feel like a leader and you may not feel like you have influence, but let me prove to you that you actually do. Has anybody ever asked you for your opinion or your thoughts or your wisdom or your advice on anything in life? Just just raise your hand because someone has come to you and asked for your opinion, whether it be on how to beat this level in a video game or maybe how to make this investment or maybe it was having to do with a yard or with a car. Somebody has come to you and said, hey, could you help me here? Because they believe that your influence could actually help them to become better or to be wiser. You have great influence. And here's the thing about influence. It's not something that you earn. It's something that you have. And you get to decide what you're gonna do with it. Which is why I wanna talk about influence today. I wanna talk about your influence and my influence and what Jesus says about influence. And I wanna start with this question. Who are the greatest influencers. We're in a world where influencers are a part of our culture and we get shaped and formed by what we see and what they say. They're influencers. They help adjust things and what's cool and what's not in culture, right? Who are the greatest influencers? Is it people who are just loud and noisy or can great influencers be people who are quiet and soft-spoken? Are the greatest influencers those who are physically strong, like me, obviously, right? Or are the greatest influencers also people who are emotionally and mentally strong? What about those who are maybe famous? Are they the only ones that can influence? Are they the greatest influencers? Or what about those who are less than famous? What about the aggressive? Those who are upfront about what they believe and what they're convicted of and their opinions about things? Or is it possible that the gentle and the hopeful and the humble can also be great influencers? Who are the greatest influencers? It's a question that we should wrestle with because we have influence and truthfully, all of us want our influence to be good, to help people, to have other people tell better stories. Isn't that why you posted that? TikTok video, right? I don't even know if I'm doing it right, but this is my version of the TikTok video, right? Isn't that why you created that reel and you shared it? Isn't that why you took that photo and put the filter on it so that more eyeballs would see it? You know you have influence and you want your influence to impact the world around you. 
And so the question we have to wrestle with today is who are the greatest influencers? Who has the greatest impact? That is the question. That's the tension that Jesus introduces us to in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon, this message, this teaching of Jesus actually helped people to know what life is like in the kingdom of God and to know what it means to find and to follow Jesus with your life, to trust him, to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, to be a Christian. And Jesus shares all of this on a mountainside. And it was Matthew who was there and he wrote it down. And the words of Jesus were powerful. Most words divide, but the words of Jesus actually invited people into a better story. We call it the genius of Jesus. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the very start of this Sermon on the Mount, a list of characteristics, of values that Jesus is sharing called the Beatitudes. And if you're watching or if you're listening for the first time today, my name is Mike. I serve as the lead pastor. I'm so glad that you're here. And I would love for you to come and sit with us at our Ukaipa location. We have two services, 9 a.m., 10.45. It'd be great to have you here. But while you're watching or while you're listening, Let's take a look at the third thing that Jesus said, the third beatitude that's all about influence. In fact, it's Jesus sharing who are the greatest influencers, who will have the greatest impact in this world. And I'd love for you to follow along. Matthew is the letter that we're going to be in. It's in the New Testament in the Bible. And so if you have a Bible with you or If you have the Bible app on your phone, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And if you're watching this, the verses will be here on the screen in just a moment. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 is where Matthew shares what Jesus is talking about. And it's the third beatitude. It's the third posture of the heart that the people of God choose as they live in the kingdom of God. And here's what Matthew writes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, initially, when we talk about the greatest influencers, those who have the greatest impact. I don't think that we think about people who are meek. We think about people who are strong, maybe people who are loud, maybe a politician or somebody that's famous, right? We don't think of meek people being influential. In fact, what we think about is that meek people are weak people, right? Especially for us that are guys. Guys, dudes, should not be meek because to be meek is to be weak, right? And no matter who we are, whether you're a guy or a girl, whether you're young or old, meekness isn't the first conversation that you have when you're talking about influence. But then Jesus comes along, the Son of God, talking about what it means to follow Him and live in the kingdom of God. And He says in the kingdom of God, the meek are the strongest. Now, let's talk about that word meek for a moment because there might be some misconceptions and misunderstandings about that word. Like, for example, we assume that it means that you're weak or you're soft. But the truth is, meek has three layers to it. The word has three layers to it. The characteristics of it are rich. They're deeply rooted. The, The first layer is that a meek person is gentle, which means that they have beliefs and they have convictions and they have opinions but they're not aggressive with those beliefs and convictions and opinions. They're gentle with those. And in their gentleness, they actually draw people in. They invite people into a better story. They don't divide. 
They don't blast people on social media. They wait for the relationship and trust in the relationship to share some deep, meaningful truth. That's what meek people do. The second layer to someone who is meek is that they are humble. They are void of pride. Now I know that's hard to not be prideful or selfish, right? Egotistical. This isn't somebody who is completely void of pride, but it's somebody who doesn't prioritize their ego first. It's somebody who doesn't prioritize what they want first. They choose humility in their conversations, in their relationships, as they share opinions and convictions. And then the third layer of meekness is to be considerate. I I like the word thoughtful, where they actually are aware of the person that they are in relationship with, the person that they're talking to. Even if it is on social media, the person on the other side of the screen is important to somebody who chooses the posture of being meek. According to Jesus, meekness is not weakness, friends. Meek is not weak if you're a guy, and meek is not weak if you're a girl. Meek is not weak if you're young, and meek is not weak if you're old. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, meekness, according to Jesus, is strength under control. And here's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just drop this on us and move on. But later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually teases out what meekness looks like. And again, Matthew wrote it down. So I want to share what Jesus said, and I want to break it into little parts because there's a lot of context that needs to be understood as we read through this. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says this, as he's talking about what it means to be meek in real, tangible life. He says this, You have heard that it was said, which means this is what you've been taught when you went to synagogue, when you went to the tabernacle. You have heard people teach you this. Mom and dad may have taught you an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What Jesus is referencing here is that there is a Jewish law, a Jewish tradition that gave people permission for revenge. It gave people permission to pay back the pain that has been caused upon them. Here's how it works. If somebody was to punch you, according to this Jewish law, you could punch them back. If somebody were to kick you in the shin, you could kick them in the shin back. If somebody were to gossip about you, you were to gossip about them. And it would have been okay because it was an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if someone caused you pain, you had permission and you had the opportunity to return that pain in kind. But you couldn't go beyond the pain. Are you with me? You couldn't receive a punch and then punch them back twice. And that's the problem with this law, with this tradition. Because there is never any restraint in revenge, right? You never see someone who has had pain caused upon them getting revenge and only doing what has been caused to them. They go above and beyond, don't they? I experienced this in my life. So early on in my time at Active Church, I served as the youth pastor. And this was probably year one or year two. My family was young and I was young and we were driving home from a birthday party. We were at a stoplight in our hometown. And next to us is a car full of students from our youth group. And they have their music playing, they're laughing, having a great time, and they notice that Tiff and I were in the car next to them, and so they're waving, honking, we're laughing, windows are down. And while we're waiting, the light is taking forever, right? 
It's a red light. We're there for like 45 minutes, it feels like. So these students, who I love and who love us, had Skittles, and they decided that they were going to see if they could bounce the Skittles off of my big old head. I mean, they're literally throwing them at me. And it was fun for a minute until one of the Skittles hit me in the ear and the other one hit me in the eye. And then I was like, oh, it's on, baby. And so I decided that when that light was going to turn green, I was going to get my revenge. And in the center console, on top of the center console, was a piece of cake that we didn't eat at the birthday party. And so as soon as that light turned green, you know what I did? Because I'm a godly man, I took that piece of cake and I threw it into their car. Window was down, it hit the person in the passenger seat and went everywhere. And then I yelled, ha ha suckers. That was literally what I did. And then we sped off and I thought I won. Got my revenge, right? But there is never any restraint in revenge. And I didn't anticipate that these students would want revenge. They would want to pay me back. A couple nights later, I heard some rustling outside in our driveway. It was about 11 or 12 at night. So I went outside, turned the lights on, and I heard footprints of people running away, giggling and laughing. And when I turned the lights on, my truck, my baby, was sitting in the driveway, and it was turned into a hot fudge sundae. Chocolate syrup, caramel syrup, Cool Whip, bananas, nuts, ice cream. They did an incredible job, my friends. But I was incredibly upset because I had just washed and waxed my truck that day. And do you know what dry syrup does to a paint job on a truck? It is not good. And for weeks, my windshield wipers would barely move because they were stuck. I had to wash this sucker three or four times to get all of that residue off. And needless to say, I was upset and I wanted revenge. And so just a few nights later, because there's never any restraint in revenge, I grabbed all of the confetti out of all of our copy machines here at the church. You know, when you make a three-hole punch piece of paper, all of that confetti got stored somewhere. We had bags of it here. I don't know why. I don't know if we recycled it. I didn't know, but I know that I was going to use it to get revenge. And I recruited my wife because I corrupted her. And we took these bags of confetti and we got into this student's car and we loaded it with all of this confetti to the point where when they opened it up after youth group, all of it just fell out. It was everywhere. You couldn't even sit in the truck. There is no restraint in revenge. One theologian says, according to this law, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. And so Jesus says, you have heard that you can have an eye for an eye. You can return pain because pain has been caused upon you. But you couldn't go further than that. This is what Jesus said. You have been taught. But then he actually gives them a better story to tell. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, there's all sorts of context here, and we don't have time to dig into it, but here's what you need to know. Jesus is not inviting you to just be a doormat and let people walk all over you. But turning the other cheek in this culture was actually what influential people would do. Because without saying a word after you got hit, you were turning the other cheek and you were giving that person that hit you that harmed you, that caused you pain, you were giving them an opportunity to ask a very important question of themselves. Am I gonna double down on what I've just done or am I gonna to choose to be a better person? The, the way that Jesus is describing this here is choosing to, with your life, 
to invite other people into life without even saying a word. And when he says, don't resist an evil person, you don't have to stand against them like they are standing against you. You don't have to declare war on them like they're declaring war on you. This is what Jesus says a meek person does. They decide what's better. Is more violence better or more compassion? Is more revenge and hate-filled language better or more courage and grace? Does your life invite other people into more life? According to Jesus, the people of God don't get revenge. They work towards reconciliation. That's their objective, and they're the most influential people on earth. And then Jesus says, after he talks about the meek, he drops this line. And this line is so important to the conversation because what Jesus is doing is he's giving us the goal of our posture of meekness. He's painting a picture of what the finish line looks like when we choose to be gentle and humble and thoughtful and considerate. He says this, the meek shall inherit the earth, which brings me to a place where as I read this, I'm asking this question, so I'll ask it out loud for all of us. What does that even mean? Like if they're gonna inherit the earth, like. What does that mean? Why is that such a big deal? Why does he mention land? Well, from the beginning of the story of God, the people of God received a promise from God that he would give them what they called the promised land. It was the land that they believed would help them to be safe and it would bring security to them and they would know that God is for them because they have this land. And that was the promise that they hung on to as they went through a lot of pain, including being slaves in Egypt. And they saw their land representing that God is the God, that he came through and he promised this would happen. And then he kept to that promise. And so the, the people of God, because they believed in the one true God, all these other gods were false. The people of God then began to believe like if if we're the people of God and if God is the God, then we have a powerful story to tell. And because we have a powerful story to tell, we need the space to be able to tell it because we have to let people know about this God. And so their conviction was, well, we have to, we have, to have all the land. If we have all the land, then we can tell the story of God. And that wasn't unusual in that culture because everybody believed that the gods were tied to the dirt. There's a story about a man named Naaman and a prophet named Elisha in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. Really powerful story about healing. We talked about it at Active a few weeks ago. But in this story at the end, when Naaman is healed by God, he actually asks for permission to take dirt with him back to his land. And it's a weird request. And Elisha says he can. But the reason why he did that is because he, um, amongst everybody in that time, they believed that the dirt represented the God of that land, and he wanted to bring the one true God who healed him back to his land. That's why the Israelites wanted all the land. That's why they wanted their promised land, but it's why they actually went to war and battled for other land. They were convinced that if they had all of the land, then they'd be able to tell the story of God. They were convinced that if we just overpowered everybody, then the people would submit and surrender to God, right? Because that happens all the time. When we threaten people, they make d good decisions, right? When we overpower somebody, then they're gonna wanna trust in the God that we love, right? That's what we all believe, right? That's what they believed in that time. And even in the time of Jesus, 
That's what the religious people believed. That's what the Jewish people believed. They believed that they didn't have their own land. They wouldn't be safe. There'd be no security. And they wouldn't be able to tell the story of their great God. And so they began to think about, because Rome was in charge, they began to think about how they could take their land back. And there was four groups of people that had four different perspectives on how they could do that. The Pharisees were religious, and they thought if we just obeyed God's laws and traditions, then eventually God will honor us and give us the land, and then we'll be able to have great influence. There was a group called the Sadducees. They were, they were called the realists. You might fit in that category. I'm just looking at reality, right? And, and they said, well, if we just make alliances with political leaders, then we'll get influence. Then we'll get the land. We'll just align ourselves with this person or that person, this president or that person, this emperor or that emperor. And they thought that's how they're going to get influence. There was a third group called the Essenes. They were isolationists. And the Essenes believed that if they just pulled away from everybody because everybody was evil, that God would destroy everybody and then there would be free land for the taking and then they would have all the influence. And then the last group were the Zealots. They were nationalists. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted to dominate and go to war. And they believed that they would win and then God would give them all of the influence, all of the land. They were convinced of that. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus presents to these people this question. Hey friends, who are the most influential people on earth? Who are the greatest influencers? And then he answers the question. The meek, the humble, the gentle, the considerate, those who have strength under control, they will inherit the earth. Or in other words, they will have great influence and their influence will go beyond their story. Their influence will go beyond their life. These are the men and women that will have great influence. And here's what's so remarkable about what Jesus says here. When he talks about the meek, he's actually talking about those moments when things are hard and when things are heavy, when things are beyond your control, when you don't know what to do, when you are not able to strategize, when you're not able to bring a solution, when you're not able to grab all of the power, Jesus says, that's the moment when you choose the posture of meekness and to be gentle because those are the ones that have the most influence in those moments. Those are the ones that decide that they are going to choose a better way, the way of God. According to Jesus, our influence is most effective when we are gentle. And I know it seems so foreign, right? Even as this war is breaking out in Ukraine, it feels so foreign. We want to power up and we want to get strong and we want to overpower and we want to show dominance, right? And Jesus comes along and goes, let me tell you about the men and women, young and old, who are the greatest and most influential people. It's the meek, friends. This is God speaking to you and speaking to me. And here's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just ask us to do this. He does it himself. He's not just going to talk about it. He's going to be about it. And there's a moment in his life when he is betrayed, and he's denied, and he's arrested, when he could have flexed on his God power, and yet he chose 
to be meek. And John writes about it. John was a disciple of Jesus. He wrote a few letters in the New Testament. And then the Gospel of John, the letter of John, chapter 19, verse 1, he tells us this story. After Jesus is arrested, he's before Pilate. And Pilate, according to John, had Jesus flogged. Now to be flogged is to be whipped, but not just whipped. When they would flog you, their goal was to, and I, I apologize for being so graphic, but this is reality, this is true, this is historical. Their goal was to rip skin from its bone. That was the goal. You will not cross us again, that was the goal. And John says that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on the head of Jesus and they clothed him in a purple robe. And then they went up again and again and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And then once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you. He hasn't come out yet. I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I have found no basis of charge against him. Like he is an innocent man. There's no reason why he should die. There's no reason why he should even be here. I beat him really good, but that's all that I'm going to be able to offer to you. And then in verse five, it says, when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Two thoughts, really more of a thought than a question. Some scholars believe, some theologians believe that when Pilate says, here's the man, he's not introducing Jesus. He's helping people to understand that the person that he has beaten is Jesus because some scholars believe that Jesus is so unrecognizable in that moment that nobody knew who he was. And so when Pilate says, here is the man, he's saying, yeah, this is, this is the Jesus you brought to me and look what we've done to him. Is that enough? It's essentially what he's saying to that crowd. That's the thought. Here's the question. Does this stir you up like it stirs me up? Like, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and maybe you don't, maybe you haven't trusted him with your life. But can you imagine if this was somebody that you loved and somebody was causing pain and torture against them? What would you do to stop it? Would you speak up? Would you say something? Would you run and protect them? What would you do? At what point would you say enough is enough? As I read this, that's what I feel. And I wanna even say to Jesus, like now's the time to flex on that God power, Jesus. Do it right now. And that the story has a different outcome. John continues, he says that as soon as the chief priests and officials saw him, they shouted crucify, crucify, or put him on a cross, kill him. Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God, which he is. They just didn't believe him. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He was afraid of a riot. He was afraid of them overthrowing him. He was afraid of what the emperor would do because he is not keeping these people under control and he goes back into the palace and he asks Jesus this question. He says, where did you come from? But Jesus didn't give him an answer. And Pilate is frustrated and he goes, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Like he doubles down on his power or his supposed power in that moment. And I wanna share what Jesus says next, but I wanna remind you of the words of Jesus that we started with. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, Pilate, 
I'm exactly where I want to be. I'm exactly where I planned to be. This is exactly why I came. You are just a pawn in my story. You are just a cog in this wheel. This is what is supposed to happen and it's why I have come. No flex, no yelling, no overpowering. Meekness. In a moment when he is beaten. And it wasn't the only moment. Like earlier in the night, Matthew, in his letter, tells us about when they're praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And Peter sees it and he's a friend of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, pulls his sword and he cuts the ear off of the high priest's official. And Jesus stops everything. He looks at Peter and he says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Peter, this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of the kingdom of God. This is not who we are. And then he says this, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal twelve, more than twelve legions of angels? Now, a legion in that time was a word that would describe a group of Roman soldiers in a pocket of the army. And a legion represented, get this, 6,000 soldiers. So what Jesus is saying to Peter here is this. Don't you think that I could call on my Father in heaven and he would send 12 legions of angels? Now, quick math. I, I have a biblical studies degree. I'm not a mathematician, but quick math. 12 times 6 is 72, right? And he's talking about 6,000 in one legion. This is 72,000 angels, friends. Jesus goes, don't you think that I could just like call on my heavenly father and that 72,000 angels would show up? And to all of us, we would go, you should do that. That would be great because we're not there. We're seeing it. We're reading it. If it, we were there, we'd be like, no, 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 don't do that. Especially if we're on the opposite side of Jesus. But we're like, you should do that. But then Jesus says this to Peter. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In other words, Peter, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is exactly what should happen. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to redeem and restore that which was broken. I came to forgive with my body, offering my body on a cross. I came to forgive your sin and their sin. And I came through the resurrection from death to life. I came to extend freedom to people. That's why I'm here. And we don't get there if I choose to overpower these people or if I choose to overpower you. We get there. Get this. We get there when God loans his power to us. That's what meek people do. That's what influential people do. Influence is choosing what's best for them rather than prioritizing what's best for me. And you know what was best for me? Jesus going to the cross and forgiving me of my sin and then Jesus resurrecting from the grave so that I might find freedom. And you know what was best for you? The very same thing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, the humble, the considerate, for they will have the greatest influence. And here's why this should matter to you. Eyes on me. Listen. If you're listening to the podcast, lean in. Eyes on me. Ears on me. This is why it should matter. Because meek people don't 
overpower people. Meek people loan their power to others. They loan their strength to others. Meek people, they raise courageous children. The meek, they lead transformative businesses. The meek, they serve their employees. The meek, they practice restorative love. The meek, they honor each other in a dating relationship, an engaged relationship, a marriage relationship. They honor each other in a friendship or business relationship. The meek provide hope through their generosity. The meek tell stories that last beyond their story and their life. The meek unfollow themselves and follow Jesus. The meek will have influence on the world and in their world. Friends, you are an influencer. You have influence. You get to decide what you're going to do with that influence. Are you going to tell your story or are you going to tell the best story ever told? And that is the story of Jesus. And Jesus says, those who are great influencers, the greatest who have influence are those who choose to be gentle. So tell me about your influence. And don't use your words. Show me with your life. You're one of the greatest if you choose to be meek. But you're not one of the greatest if you're aggressive. You're one of the greatest if you decide to be gentle. But you're not one of the greatest if you decide to overpower. The meek loan their power, their strength to those around them. And Jesus says those are the most influential people. They will inherit the earth. You have great influence. And you are a great leader. And your impact will go beyond you when you choose the posture of meekness. Because that's what Jesus said. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending Jesus. And thank you for showing us, teaching us, and allowing us to live in a new and fresh way, a way that is so different than what we're used to, a way that is so foreign to what everybody wants to do. The most influential people are not the ones who are the loudest or the noisiest or the most aggressive. God, may we know in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls that the most influential people, the greatest influencers are those who are gentle, thoughtful, and considerate. And may we, because we follow Jesus, may we live in that way today. In the name of Jesus. And together we say amen and amen and amen. We hope you enjoy the Active Church podcast. If you want to know more about Active Church, you can follow us on our social media platforms at Active Churches. Don't forget to subscribe as well to stay connected to future podcasts. And if you are a local, we would love for you to experience the room with us. Sunday services are 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. in Ukaipa. See you next time.